North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Welcome to another episode of the Impossible State podcast here at CSIS. Uh, this is Victor Cha, Senior Vice President and Career Chair at CSIS, Vice Dean and Professor at Georgetown University. Normally, I'm a participant on the program, but I'm subbing in for Andrew Schwartz, our Senior Vice President for External Relations, as the moderator. And today's topic is about uh, North Korean human rights. And we have two wonderful guests with us. The first guest we have is Lindsay Lloyd, who is the Bradford and Freeman Director of Human Freedom at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for joining us, Lindsay. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to be here. And also joining us is Ambassador Robert King, who was the senior envoy for human rights in North Korea for the uh, Obama administration. Prior to that, had a long and distinguished period of service on Capitol Hill as chief of staff to Tom Lantos, but also a, a, a much deeper history that goes back for quite some time. Since he left the Obama administration at the end of the second term, he has been with us here at CSIS as uh, one of our senior advisors in the career chair. So, Bob, it's really a pleasure to have you with us as well. Thanks. It's good to be here. Um, so to get us started, I thought I might ask both of you to talk a little bit about the things that you're working on when it comes to North Korean human rights uh, let's start with Bob. Not an insignificant achievement, Bob. You've just authored a book about your experiences on North Korean human rights that was, I think, published by Brookings Press and the Asia Pacific uh, Research Center at Stanford that just recently came out, I think, within the last few months, right? Just a couple of months ago. <laughs> it was a good opportunity, and Stanford was very thoughtful in terms of providing me the chance to think back over my experiences. I was there for over seven years. And it's kind of nice to be able to think about what you were doing, what you were trying to do, and put it in the context of what's been going on with North Korea. I didn't want to go through and catalog the North Korean human rights abuses. That's been done extremely well by the Commission of Inquiry, which was established by the UN Human Rights Council. It's also done by a number of organizations. The uh, Committee for Human Rights in North Korea has done a number of excellent studies that have cataloged, identified, pinpointed what the human rights abuses are in North Korea. What I tried to do in the book is to to talk about what I was trying to do, what my thinking was in terms of how we ought to press North Korea on human rights. And basically, there were half a dozen areas that I tried to focus on. Uh, the first of these was working with the United Nations, working through the United Nations on North Korea's human rights engagement. The UN plays an important role in that regard. 
human rights are an obligation of members of the United Nations. There's the Human Rights Council, the concern that's uh, expressed in the General Assembly and other institutions about human rights, and being able to, to push on the North Korea problem in the United Nations context was very helpful. In addition to simply providing an, another voice, there's the opportunity through the United Nations to make this not just a US issue. Other countries in the world are interested, are concerned. In the Human Rights Council, for example, it was the European Union and Japan during the days that I was there that took the lead on the North Korean issues and uh, on the human rights issues. And, and this was extremely important. And so I think it was a, a very useful and very functional kind of thing to do. We were able to get the issue brought up in the Security Council. Since we first raised it in 2014, we've been able to raise it now four times in the Security Council. It's been discussed. So simply internationalizing the human rights concern is an important way that we had of raising the level of the issue of increasing pressure on North Korea. Uh, we also focused, a uh, second issue was how do we get information into North Korea? The importance of information, people in North Korea knowing what's going on elsewhere, what people are saying about North Korea and about North Korea human rights is extremely important. North Korea is the, one of the most isolated countries in the world. We made efforts in terms of radio broadcasting, in terms of other kinds of, of systems for getting things focused on getting information into North Korea. Third issue that I spent probably more time than I would like to have spent was dealing with Americans who were detained by the North Koreans. We had a number of Americans who were held for various periods of time. The, the best known of the cases recently is Otto Warmbier, who died shortly after being released by the North Koreans when he returned to the United States. And, and this was something that I spent a lot of time dealing with in terms of these issues. A fourth issue was the question of refugees. North Korean refugees, most of them go to South Korea. There are problems in China because China is the way out for most North Koreans who seek to leave. We had issues that we had to deal with China on trying to encourage opportunities for North Koreans to be allowed to, to leave. It was also a question in terms of what we do in the United States and how we provide for those refugees that choose to come here. So that was uh, another issue that, that I spent a good deal of time focusing on. The last issue was the question of humanitarian engagement. And I spent a certain amount of time during uh, one of the periods when I was involved dealing with providing humanitarian assistance to North Korea. We also worked very closely with a number of American NGOs who were involved in humanitarian help, medical assistance, educational assistance, technical assistance on uh, increasing farming productivity and so forth. So my, my focus in the book was to try to look at these kinds of things that we tried to do, what we were able to do, what were the problems, and, and where do things stand. So it was, it was a nice opportunity to think back over that period of time. 
Thanks. That's a great synopsis of the book, Bob. Uh, I hope it'll whet their appetite to buy it, not deter them from buying it because they got the Cliff Notes version of it. So, <laughs> over to Lindsay. So, so as I said, Lindsay is director of the Human Freedom Initiative at the George W. Bush Institute. President Bush has actually quite a unique history when it comes to North Korean human rights. Um, I think that we'd all agree on. I mean, he was the first president to sign into law the North Korean Human Rights Act. And personally took an interest in um, trying to improve the lives of North Koreans. I was there when he actually brought in one of the uh, defectors from North Korea into the Oval Office to meet with him, the author, Kang Chol Hwan. He was quite interested in this issue. Lindsay, perhaps, um, you know, now that he's, you know, he left presidency, he's had this institute, you, maybe, perhaps you can tell us about some of the work that you and he have been doing on North Korean human rights, because it's, it's quite interesting stuff, though. You're right. You know, Kang Chol Hwan, Aquariums of Pyongyang was kind of the, the initial spark in terms of his interests. And he's maintained that, you know, in the uh, 20 odd years since then. The George W. Bush Institute, we opened our doors in 2009, shortly after uh, he and Mrs. Bush left Washington. And North Korea quickly became a priority issue for us. We did something really smart in 2014. We hired you as a part-time fellow uh, um, to, to help guide that work. But we wanted, we set out really with three, three main goals. The first was to, to better expose the suffering of the North Korean people. This was a time when there was a lot of attention being paid to North Korea's nuclear ambitions and nuclear tests and so forth. And we wanted to make sure that there was also a spotlight on the human rights side of things. We wanted to um, put these issues sort of on the radar of policymakers, opinion leaders, and the, the general public, particular outreach to the Korean American community, which hasn't always been engaged on these issues, but when given the opportunity, had, had some, some real energy that they brought to the conversation. And, um, you know, particularly we found among second generation Korean Americans, a real desire um, to learn more and to do more, try and be active on this. And thirdly, to try and provide some, some real assistance to the North Korean people. In our case, that wasn't um, the kind of programs that Ambassador King was describing in terms of providing medical relief or, or agricultural relief, things like that. But was, what could we do for the small community of North Koreans that have resettled here in the United States? As Ambassador King said, you know, there have been uh, a large number of, have made it to South Korea, more than 30,000. About somewhere between 200 and 250 North Koreans have resettled a year, thanks in part to the North Korean Human Rights Act, President Bush signed into law. And we decided specifically after doing some research to establish a scholarship program for North Koreans, for their kids who have resettled permanently here in the United States. So we, uh, beginning in 2017, established the scholarship. We have supported 28 refugees, so about 10% of the total population here, giving away almost $170,000 in scholarships for college, community college, things like that. So we've done different papers, different events, things like that, again, to sort of spotlight what's been happening. Great. Thanks, Lindsay. And, and I would say that, and I think you'd both agree that there may be a lot of debate on the North Korea nuclear issue, but there's not a lot of partisan debate on the North Korean human rights issue. This is the one law that gets unanimously approved by both houses. And when Ambassador King was working for the Obama administration on these issues, there were many opportunities that we, that the Bush Institute and 
Ambassador King and others all collaborated on, on this issue. So there's a lot of bipartisan support for this. A question I have for Bob is that, so you did this incredible job as the human rights envoy for both terms of the Obama administration. Normally what we would do is we'd also have your successor on the program, but there is no successor since you left office. And so perhaps we could start by maybe you could tell us a little bit of, of background about this human rights envoy position that, that you did. And then, you know, what sort of person would be good for this, for this particular thing? I'm, I'm not asking you to name names, but what sort of person would be, do you think would be good for this sort of job? And why haven't we had one since you last held the, held the position? The position was created by Congress. When the North Korea Human Rights Act was passed in uh, 2004, law said there will be a, a special envoy for North Korea human rights issues. Initially, it was presidential appointment. When the act was reauthorized, was extended four years later in 2008, the legislation specified that the individual would have the rank of ambassador and require Senate confirmation. So it's basically a position that Congress pressed the administration to establish. And I think there was a feeling that they, there needed to be someone who would give attention and focus to the human rights aspects of, of our relationship with North Korea. And I think that's basically the, the logic behind it. That's certainly how I approached it in terms of making sure that, that we were giving attention and giving focus to these human rights problems. The value of having a person in that position and the value of having a person with the rank of ambassador is that it gives you enough stature and status within the, the bureaucracy, within the, the government, to be able to raise human rights issues at a level where they can get some attention. It's just useful to have someone who sort of thinks about the human rights angle on all kinds of issues. And when you're in meetings that are talking about anything to do with North Korea, there are certain ways that you can shape policy to give it the human rights angle more attention and more focus. And that was what I really saw this position as, as being able to do. The kind of person that you want to do this is, I think, somebody who's deeply committed to the human rights issue, but also somebody who's willing to not only work within the State Department organization to push the issue, but somebody who will also reach out beyond to raise the issues uh, and in create pressure on the State Department to do these things. I work closely with NGOs, with non-government organizations. I consider that an important part of my effort. But I also considered the importance of encouraging other countries to take an interest and, and to focus on, on North Korea human rights. And so I made a point of being in Geneva whenever the North Korean human rights issue was on the agenda. I felt like I needed to be there and make sure that people understood that this was a special interest for the United States. But I also made a point of trying to reach out to other governments and other countries to make this an important issue. I worked very closely with the South Korean government, which has a serious interest in North Korea, and uh, worked with people in North Korea who were involved in, in concern with the human rights issue. I think in part because of the American decision to create this human rights special envoy, uh, the South Korean government initially created a ambassador at large for human rights issues who, in fact, 
worked heavily on North Korean human rights issues, but they subsequently created a position of ambassador for North Korea human rights issues, who was a direct counterpart to me. And I, I think this was useful and important because it sort of raised the profile of the human rights issue. And I think that was, that was particularly important. Right. That's terrific. One of the things you mentioned was working with NGO organizations. And I want to go to Lindsay, because I know that the Bush Institute has worked with a number of different groups and want to get his view on that. But before I do that, can I just one quick follow up, Bob? So why hasn't there been your successor? This position seems to have been vacant for a while. When the Trump administration came in, one of the first things the uh, first Secretary of State, uh, Rex Tillerson, did was to go through and uh, look at how he was going to restructure the State Department. And one of the first things he did was to uh, announce that he was going to get rid of that position, that he was uh, proposing that that position be eliminated. And that uh, uh, an undersecretary who has a lot of other responsibilities and deals with a lot of other issues would also take over the North Korea human rights portfolio. That was something that was pretty well disposed of even before Tillerson was disposed of. And the point was that there should be someone in that position. But unfortunately, the Trump administration didn't appoint anyone. The initial effort was largely to use human rights as a stick to beat the North Koreans to try to uh, encourage them to uh, cooperate with the United States in looking at the nuclear issue. And then there was the effort to uh, engage the North Koreans, a couple of uh, summits, and ultimately no special envoy was ever appointed uh, or uh, named or nominated to uh, be considered by Congress. Well, that's unfortunate uh, because it is such an important position. Over to Lindsay. Again, Bob mentions that one of the things he did was work with NGOs. I know that uh, you and the Institute have worked with a lot of groups in the United States around. I mean, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the work that you've done with other groups. I know that you've worked with a lot of younger folk, younger student groups on human rights as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think what one of the things that we tried to do, and I think, um, you know, with your leadership, uh, we're successful in doing is sort of bringing together the two sides of the, the, the North Korea watchers here. You have a, a number of, of institutions, individuals, scholars and so forth that are very focused on the security issues. Then you have a, a parallel group that's more interested in the human rights issues and bringing those two groups together, the security people with the, the human rights people and having a conversation about how, how, you know, we believe, and I think it's become a growing belief that you won't solve the, the security issues around North Korea until you sort of get at the real character of the state, including how it treats its own people. So having those kind of conversations, those dialogues, I think were extremely important and insisting that human rights has to be a part of that conversation. I give the Trump administration some credit for trying something different. Um, you know, this direct high level face-to-face -face diplomacy, but what uh, they failed to do um, as best as we understand it was ever raise any of these human rights issues in these uh, conversations between Kim Jong-un and, and Donald Trump. So, you know, we, we think that they're, they're really two sides of, of, of the same cloth that you've got to have the human rights plank along with the security plank if you ever want to get anywhere with, with the North Korean state. Um, in terms of our outreach to younger people, we've done quite a bit of work with Liberty in North Korea, or LINK, which is a phenomenal organization, which initially started as a student-led group 
to rescue North Koreans. Unfortunately, the number of North Koreans getting out has essentially stopped. I read uh, recently that you know there were only two North Koreans that made it to the South last year. There was never a torrent of escapees, but um, this is sort of a new low. But but Link Liberty North Korea is working to raise awareness, a goal that we share, um, support the exile population here in the U.S. and in South Korea. So we've done quite a bit with them, speaking to different student groups uh, around the country, things like that. I know that Bob also, both as envoy, but then even as, after he's left as envoy, has had done numerous campus visits with different student organizations here in the U.S. that have really, there's a lot of activity, a lot of energy on campuses uh, with regard to this particular issue. But I, I didn't know if you wanted to say anything about the point that Lindsay raised about how the outflow of people from North Korea really has dwindled dramatically to a trickle, you know, both those going to South Korea as well as those coming to the United States. Um, what's your assessment of that? That's been a particularly important issue. That was one of the reasons Congress initially became interested in the North Korean human rights issue was the concern about refugees who were trying to leave and some of whom were coming to the United States. Uh, the numbers have, have dropped precipitously, as Lindsay mentioned. Part of the problem is that when Kim Jong-un came in, one of the things that he's done is progressively tighten the borders, increasing security on the borders and imposing stiffer penalties and fines against people. The numbers were declining even before COVID, but the COVID pandemic has given the North Koreans, I think the right word is probably a fanatic intensity to stopping people from leaving North Korea and, and escaping to go to the South. The numbers have declined significantly, and the North Koreans, because of their paranoia about the COVID pandemic, have just tightened up the borders intensely. Numbers are, are way down. The number in the United States, I think Lindsay said there were only a couple that made it to the United States last year. South Korea numbers are uh, also very small. South Korea was at one point almost 3,000 a year were reaching South Korea. That number, again, has, has dropped well below that. And uh, it's unfortunate because these are people who have made important contributions in South Korea and in the United States, and it's given them opportunities that they would not have had uh, staying in North Korea. And we need to continue to try to help them have that opportunity to get out. And a couple of them have even not only made done well in South Korea, but they've actually been elected to public office, right? Taeyong Ho and Ji Sung Ho, both National Assemblymen, some of them in the most affluent district, representing the most affluent districts in Seoul. So I think, I mean, it's important to talk about, I think, the activities that both of you undertake, because as both of you said, a big part of this issue is consciousness and sort of mobilizing people to, to care, to first understand and care about this issue. Maybe we can move now to something that you both mentioned, which is the other element of the human rights portfolio is also the humanitarian issues. And I know that, Bob, you worked on these quite a bit. Your thoughts on whether that we are, we are in some, uh, approaching or already in some sort of humanitarian crisis in North Korea, given the impact of COVID? Love to get your thoughts, thoughts on that. Sure. I think there's a real a real problem in, in North Korea because of the, uh, the shutdown of the borders uh, for the COVID, the concern about COVID. Some of the numbers, uh, again, North Korea is very difficult because of the access to information uh, is, is so, so tight. 
there are estimates that uh, <clears throat> we're talking about trade dropping to 10% of what it was in the pre-COVID era. And North Korea is a country which does depend heavily on trade for various products uh, that provide food and medicine for its people. And uh, this has been, I think, a very serious problem in North Korea, just because of the uh, economic problems that it's had. But in addition to that, there's been uh, much tougher weather. Weather conditions have been more difficult. There have been increasing storms. Uh, North Korea has faced problems, uh, is facing problems this year uh, with the destruction of food, uh, loss of harvest. I think there are very serious potential problems for North Korea going on right now. And it's increasingly difficult to try to provide help to them because foreigners are not allowed to go into the country. And that's not just the on the American side preventing Americans from going, but also uh, the North Koreans are not allowing foreigners to come in. Diplomats have largely left North Korea because of the difficulties there. All of these, I think, are indications of, of a very serious problem going on in North Korea and no easy solutions. Lindsay, so following on from what Bob said, do you think that perhaps these conditions in North worsening conditions provides an opportunity for some sort of humanitarian diplomacy by the Biden administration? Yeah, I think the opportunity is there. I, I would just note there the um, you know as we're taping this on uh, September 10th, the Washington Post has a really terrific article about essentially how little we know about what's going on inside North Korea is. As Ambassador King said, you know, the bulk of the diplomatic corps, never large, has left. You know, foreign journalists, again, there were never a lot of them, but uh, even those few that were based in Pyongyang are, are gone. And the flow of refugees, which was another source of information about what was happening in country, you know, has essentially stopped. So there's a lot that we just don't know, a lot of speculation that's going on. I think we, we've always been open to the idea that humanitarian aid is important and that it, it is something that should be done because it's the right thing to do. Again, you know, this, this notion of wanting to help the North Korean people, the challenge is how do you ensure that uh, food aid or, or, or medicine or whatever it may be that is taken in North Korea actually gets to the people who need it, not just to the elites. You know, North Korea has generally been steadfastly opposed any sort of international monitoring of what's going on, of allowing donors to kind of make sure that the, their, their assistance is getting to the right place. So that's a real challenge. I mean, you want to you see food get in, you want to see medicine get in, you know, COVID vaccines get in, things like that. But you also want to ensure that it's not just going to the, to the party elites um, and, the, and the top echelons of society. So my view on this is the, you know, the, the algorithm that works with regard to that is not when each of these organizations like the WHO or the WFP or other NGOs uh, and governments are negotiating individually with North Korea on the terms of humanitarian assistance. Uh, what works best is when, in one case, the United States is sort of negotiating on behalf of itself, WFP, the WHO and others on sort of a broad 
protocol for how all assistance should go in. And I, that seemed to work best in, in my experience in the past. We're, we're running out of time here. Can I just go to sort of a, a lightning round, if you will? And I know these are, this is going to be very unfair, <laughs> very unfair questions, but we didn't really, uh, and Bob touched on it a little bit because he talked about some of the other actors. I wanted to sort of ask you if you could give a sort of thumbs up or thumbs down on the role that other external actors are playing in this North Korean human rights issue. So are they, so basically are they, are they a positive force or are they not, not a particularly positive force in helping on this issue? So the first country is Japan. Bob? The Japanese have a concern with uh, Japanese citizens who are abducted. And that's been the focus of Japanese concern. But it has also been a way that North Koreans have been able to leverage assistance from Japan, and the Japanese have provided some assistance. So the proximity of Japan, the importance of Japan, and, and the size of its economy are going to continue to make Japan an important player on the human rights scene. And they do have an interest, and we need to work with them on that. I worked very closely with the Japanese on a lot of these questions and met with the abductee families. And yes, very important. Lindsay, China. China has been difficult. You know, we saw an initial period when when the Commission of Inquiry report came out. We saw China actually move in some ways that were a bit surprising um, to not fully comply, at least somewhat comply with trade embargoes and trade restrictions, things like that, sanctions. But more recently, I, I I think um, China has not played a very constructive role. They continue to to send escapees back to North Korea in violation of international treaties. They've done very little um, by most accounts to sort of stem uh, the nuclear program. And although you know ties have been somewhat restricted by, by North Korea's self-imposed isolation, China's leverage uh, remains enormous. It, um, you know, unfortunately, we've got a leader in in North Korea that's willing to starve his own people to see them suffer. Um, but really, uh, China's, China's economic influence, China's leverage there um, is sort of the one, the one thing that could really turn North Korea around if they chose to do it. But that's obviously not where Xi Jinping's government is these days. Bob, Europe. We tend to think Europe isn't involved, but in fact, they play a very important role. Many European countries have embassies in Pyongyang. We work through the Swedish embassy to deal with U.S. citizen problems. We work closely with other uh, EU countries and other non-EU countries that have an, a presence in North Korea. And it's been a positive and a helpful relationship. I made a point when I was in uh, Geneva to work very closely with the Europeans. And when I went to Geneva, I usually went on to Brussels and met with members of the European Parliament, with the Foreign Ministry of the European Union. I think it's important that we make this not a U.S.-North Korea issue. Human rights needs to be an issue that involves other countries and a lot of other countries. And the Europeans have an interest in these issues. They have the resources. They have a presence in Pyongyang. I think they're very important, and I think we need to continue to work with them. And the last one, and this is a tricky one, Lindsay, South Korea. Yeah, I've been heading, heading into uh, a, an election campaign in the spring of 2022 for the presidency and, 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 and other offices. I think, um, you know, the, the, the Moon Jae-in administration has tried at least initially to, 
to forge a new kind of relationship with the North. You know, there were multiple meetings between the two countries, sort of paralleling what was happening in the U- in the U.S. under the Trump administration. You've also seen, I think, uh, somewhat troubling restrictions that have been placed on South Korean NGOs um, that were trying to get information in, that were doing different activities to sort of publicize human rights abuses in North Korea, which was very much out of favor with what the Moon government was trying to do. You're much more an expert on this than I am, but I, I wouldn't expect to see a lot of movement on this you know, over the next six months or so until the South Korean elections happen. And if they go one way, that probably means a um, you know, continued effort to engage. If they go the other way, you know, more of a let's isolate the North, let's publicize the misdeeds of the North, that kind of thing. So it's unlike in the United States where there is no Republican or Democratic position on North Korean human rights. In South Korea, unfortunately, it's become a, a partisan issue, and that complicates things a great deal. Victor, could I add something on South Korea? When Americans get involved in something, we tend to think we're the only ones that are doing anything, and we tend to sort of elbow our way into these issues. The one thing that I tried to do, and that I think Americans need to try to do, is look at human rights as largely a Korean problem, and we aren't the center of the issue. We're on the outside edge, but we can help. South Korea has an an emotional link with North Korea. These people are Koreans. They're brothers, they're sisters, they're family members. Uh, There's a long history. And this important link is something that we as Americans looking at the issue need to be very cognizant of. And uh, I think it's important that we work closely with South Korea. I think I visited South Korea more than any other country when I was special envoy because I felt like that was where we needed to make sure that the South Koreans understood what we were trying to do and we worked together on these kinds of issues. So I think Americans need to be sensitive to the South Korean concerns. And I think we need to coordinate, cooperate, exchange ideas and information to make sure that we're both working together. We both have similar interests. South Korea is is a country whose government, whose principles, whose ideals are very much like the United States. And I think we need to make sure that we work carefully and closely with them on these kinds of issues. This is terrific. So um, we're about out of time now. So I want to thank Lindsay Lloyd, uh, Freeman, Director of Human Freedom at the George W. Bush Institute, and Ambassador Robert King, former uh, Envoy for Human Rights for the Obama Administration and uh, Senior Advisor at CSIS for joining us on The Impossible State for this discussion about human rights in North Korea. Thanks to our audience, and um, we'll be with you on the next episode of The Impossible State. Thanks to you both. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at CSIS.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean Peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is The Impossible State.